Shabbat Shalom and welcome to the Musson household. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. As I light our Shabbat candles to set apart this special gift for our family, may it remind us all of the light of Messiah that shines in us and in our home. As I cover my eyes, may we be reminded that before Messiah opens our eyes, we cannot see the glories and the joy of all on which his light sheds understanding. With my hands, I spread the light of the candles throughout our home to express my desire as a wife and mother that the light of Messiah and the joy of his Shabbat rest be spread throughout our home. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Malech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzvotav, Vitzivanu Lehiot or Lagoim Vanatan Lanu, Et Yeshua Meshikenu or HaOlam. Blessed are you, Adonai our Elohim, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by his commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua, our Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now for the Kiddush. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Borei Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now, for the blessing over the bread. Amotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to Yah for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechem min haaretz, Amen. Blessed are you, Adonai Elohim, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. And now, the blessing for the wife. Adonai, my Elohim, thank you for the incredibly wonderful wife that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May she be, as it says in your word, a woman of valor, more precious than jewels, in whom my heart may trust and my fortune is found. Amen. And the blessing for the husband. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the husband that you have been so gracious to bless me with. May he be, as it says in your word, a man whose delight is in your Torah. May he be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Amen. Blessing for the children. Behold! Children are a gift of Adonai. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Blessing for the sons. Yisimcha Elohim ke'Ephraim v'ki Manasseh. May Elohim make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Adonai, my Elohim, I thank you for the sons that you have given me. May they be, as it says in your word, men whose delight is in your holy Torah, gracious, compassionate, and righteous, fearing no evil, but with a steadfast heart to 
blessing in you. Amen. And the blessing for our daughters. Adonai, our Elohim, we thank you for the daughters that you have blessed us with. May they be, as it says in your word, women of valor, more precious than jewels, arrayed in strength and majesty, and whose mouths open with wisdom so that the teaching of kindness may be upon their tongues. Amen. Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Shalom. May the peace of Adonai be with you always. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Adonai hamvorach. Baruch Adonai hamvorach le'olam va'ed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Baelim Adonai. Michamocha, Nedar Bakodesh. Noratehilot. O sefele, O sefele, who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who is like you, Lord? There is none Amen. And now the blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua ba-Mashiach Yeshua. All together, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat. La'asot et ha-Shabbat l'adoratam barit olam. B'nei uvayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshashet yamin asa Aronai et hashamayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Aronai Elochecha. Ve'chol levavcha, uv'chol nafshecha, uv'chol meyodecha. Ve'hayu ha'devarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Ve'shinantam levanecha, ve'libartabam, ve'shivtecha, ve'beftecha, uv'lechtecha, ve'derech, uv'shuch becha, uv'kumicha. Uksartam leot al yedecha, v'hayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shalom, everyone. Welcome to our Erev Shabbat broadcast. Uh, this week's portion uh, from the Torah is entitled Toledot, which means generations. And we're uh, uh, transferring from the story of Abraham into the story of Isaac and his sons. And in fact, the bulk of the portion is really about the sons of Isaac. Uh, let me just share one brief thing, just as a reminder about it. When, whenever we use the term generations uh, in the scripture, we're talking about the descendants of someone. The generations of Isaac are the descendants of the. It's not explaining where did Isaac come from. It, it's explaining that which came after. So we're going to talk about um, specifically his two sons. Now, let me just review... Um, if you've done your own study for this week, just review quickly the story. Um, Isaac and Rebecca, uh, Rebecca finally got pregnant. It, it was a long time before she became pregnant. And when she did, her pregnancy was very difficult. And she struggled with the children in the womb. And she sought counsel about it. And the Lord basically gave her a prophecy and answered that she had two nations in her womb and that the younger one would rule over the older one, that the firstborn uh, of her would be subject to the secondborn. Well, as the birth came, sure enough, here comes Esau. He is the firstborn, and literally as he's being born, um, Jacob came forth with his hand holding on to the heel of, of uh, Esau as they were born. They were twins, and he followed very quickly in the birth canal holding on to the heel. And those that were there at the birth, they took specific note of it. And in fact, that's the basis of Jacob's name. Uh, Jacob's name is the letter Yod, which means hand, followed by the word Yaakov, or Ekov, which means heel. So his name, Jacob, actually means hand on the heel. And so that's how he got his name that he has it. And as time would go on, and that's what our Torah portion was about, why there came a, a time when the two boys were uh, semi-mature young men, 
Esau was a man that was a hunter. He would go off and hunt and gather things like that, whereas Jacob stayed closer to the tents, and he was a shepherd, and he would assist with his mother. And it tells us that Isaac favored Esau, whereas Rebekah favored Jacob. I don't know if you've ever seen a family that might have some kind of dynamic, but it's weird when it happens. Um, and this led to um, a, a, a disconnect, a, a breach, if you will, between Esau and his mother and Jacob and vice versa. Well, there came a moment in time, and we think they were about the age of teens, somewhere between 15 and 19 years of age, in which that um, there was this, um, actually what it was, was Abraham's funeral. And Esau was late getting there. The word had gone out, they were going to do the funeral, and he was late getting there. And when he showed up, the mourner's meal, which had been prepared by Jacob, that was the honor was supposed to be given to the firstborn to prepare such a meal. However, Esau wasn't there, so Jacob had done it. And the mourner's meal are lentils. It's any little round thing because it's emphasizing at a funeral the cycle of life. So they use little round things to explain the cycle of life. Lentil stew, little round, you know, pea bean type things. And when um, Esau came in, very irreverently, he said, uh, uh, you know, he wanted some of that soup, some of that stew. And at that point, I think you can sense that Jacob is very disgusted with his brother, that he hasn't been there properly to show honor to their grandfather, Abraham. And he says something about, well, sell me your birthright first. In other words, the birthright would have been the person who would have made the stew, who would have done the honor for Abraham and for his father. And since he didn't value that, he wasn't interested in rendering the honor or the value why he was confronting him and said, well, give me your birthright so that I can do it properly, you know, for them since you're not here doing it. And, of course, at that point Esau took the position that his birthright didn't mean anything and it had no value to him and that it was not even worth a bowl of stew, but he said he'd trade it. And so the deal is made. Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. Now, from the aftermath of this, there's a very profound statement that is made by God. And it essentially is, Esau have I hated, Jacob I have loved. And God now weighed in on this dynamic that was going on. And we believe that part of what God's um, uh, taking that position with Esau was because of Esau's disrespect toward Abraham and what God was establishing through Abraham's family. Our Haftor portion comes to us from the book of Malachi, chapter 1. It's going to tie back into that story. And let me begin to read to you the first words here of Malachi so you can see how it connects. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? 
Was not Esau Jacob's brother, uh, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord, he be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now there's more that goes with this, including all of chapter 1 that is part of a Haftor portion. But let's address this central point. If you poll the average um, person, Christian, who reads about this story, and he sees this statement that Esau have I hated, Jacob I have loved. They have a hard time reconciling that. You see, we're under the impression that God is love, and God is all forgiving, and that no one can commit a sin that isn't possible for them to be restored and, you know, by the Lord. And so this statement, as bold and as naked as it is, seems to assault that whole concept. And rather than Christians being reconciled to it and understanding what really is being expressed, they dismiss it and prefer their theology, which is God is love and all forgiving. And they fail to take into account what's really being expressed and what really is, is the issue that's going on here. Uh, right now in the United States, uh, part of our controversy in the faith is we have a lot of people who uh, want to have the alternate lifestyle. They want to be a homosexual or a lesbian. They, they want to do transgender. And they expect Christians and the church to accept them as full members right along with everybody else. And they argue that the basis of a relationship is really about love. And in not too long ago, I had a conversation with some people in which they were saying, yeah, but what do you say to a homosexual that says we have a committed relationship and it's based on love, you know, for that. And whereas they failed to get it, that the relationship that they're describing is the same one as adultery is and is the same one as having sex with animals or sex with children. It's lust. It's all the forms of lust. A man's desire for a man, a woman's desire for a woman. And they just dismiss all of these basic rules. And to summarize how those rules really work, is God is very emphatic about that he hates sin. He doesn't support things that don't promote life. If you do things that actually bring death and darkness and despair, he's not in favor of them. For some reason, God's in favor of health and life and multiplying and increasing and, and those kinds of things. He doesn't want us to do anything that would disturb 
that flow of life because he knows in the end it's not good for us. So he has specified and given us rules. What we shall call clean and unclean, what is holy, what is profane. Uh, and, and he's been very specific about these guidelines for life. Well, we have a group of people who don't want to support God's rules. I mean, there's no question that in the, uh, um, in, in the Old Testament and in the Torah, God is opposed to homosexuals. So when a homosexual Christian wants to argue, and that's brought up, he says, well, that's not part of our theology. That's the law that was passed away. And so, we're, boy, this is what you brought on yourselves, the Christian world, by dismissing the Torah. Because if you stand up and say, no, it does it, then you're the hypocrite. You said you didn't have to follow the law. Now you want to cite the law against someone else, and you're a hypocrite in doing so. So the Christian church has had to fold back because of this. Fundamentally, let's get back to what we're being expressed here. Esau I've hated, Jacob I've loved. God is the person who decides concerning the universe. And if God says, this is the way it is, then that's the way it is. And no man and no group of people can possibly go up and counter what he has said. We have to accept that. Now, is it theological possible that Esau, in the course of his life, could have repented and come back to the Lord and so forth? Yes, it's possible. Did he? No, he didn't. No, he separated from God, from the God of Israel, he separated from his brother. We're going to hear other activity with him and Jacob uh, in the future. And he will be threatening and do harm. And in fact, there's a prophecy that says their descendants will continue to do harm. And right now today, the best description I can give you for the conflict in the Middle East between the Palestinians and between the Jews it's the descendants of Esau versus the descendants of Jacob. Now look at the Palestinian-Israeli problem. Nobody in their right mind thinks that can be solved. I'm not kidding you. World leaders all talking about peace agreements and security agreements and so forth. They all confess it's an unsolvable problem. Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. It seems irreconcilable. And that's what is at stake here in the world. Now, essentially what the Haftor portion does, it's a reminder of how God has continued to treat Esau. You chose not to go the way of blessing, so I'm going to give you the way of curses. You know, whereas Israel will live in the wonderful land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey. Esau, you're going to live in the wilderness, and it's going to be desolate. That's the comparison. And Esau, who also is called Edom, which means red, the land of Edom, they moved down to the region that's in Jordan today. Uh, they moved down to the east of where the promised land is of Israel in southern Jordan. That's the land of Edom. Uh, where Esau was from, 
And the offspring of Esau and Edom uh, ended up being some of the most horrific people we've had in the world. Not the least of which is Amalek. Amalek descends through the line of Esau. And Amalek has always been a great problem for Israel. In fact, we have a Torah commandment specifically commanding the children of Israel in every generation that upon seeing the sons of Amalek that they're to be killed on sight. That's about as serious a commandment as Esau, I hated Jacob, I loved. God didn't change his mind with regard to Esau's descendants either. He considers them enemies, and they have behaved throughout history as bitter enemies. When we read in the Torah portion coming up about Jacob returning from um, Laban's house with his wives and his children, there's going to be a meeting, this is in Genesis 33, in which that um, Jacob has to confront Esau. Esau is going to confront him as he comes back in the land. And there is this scene, it's a very strange scene, in which that um, the two come forward and Esau kisses Jacob on his neck. But that the word, Hebrew word, kissed, the scribes put these little dots above each letter. And this is one of the places where we have the jots in the scripture. And they teach that the dots that are above there are the sharp points of teeth. And that what Esau really wanted to do was to bite his neck and destroy Jacob. That's the picture of Esau. That's the picture of Esau that God sees and knows about them. And so as a result of them being such an ancient enemy from the very beginning as young teenage boys, Extending from that point, um, you have this conflict. Now, if you know, it's going to get further aggravated in our Torah portion uh, because um, uh, the Rebecca, who knew about the prophecy that Esau was going to serve Jacob, when it came time for Isaac to give the birthright, birthright blessing, to formalize it, that Esau went off into the field to get game for him for the meal for it, but Rebekah got Jacob to prepare the meal quicker and to put on some of Esau's clothing and to go in and present himself as though he was Esau to um, um, Isaac. And Isaac actually spoke the blessing onto Jacob. Thus the prophecy was fulfilled. And when Esau came in, and you could tell that he had had great conflict with his brother because he referred to him, he's always been a supplanter. He's always been my, my enemy against me. And to this day, just as we have the conflict within the Christian world with regard to dealing with the Esau I hated, Jacob I love, and the, con the watershed of conflicts with regard to God's sovereignty and his commandments, we have traditionally... Most Christians going around and saying, yeah, Jacob is the evil one. Jacob is the deceiver. He's the supplanter. And it's part of the basis, are you ready for this, why the church 
historical church made the decision to become anti-Semitic and negative against the Jewish people. That's the actual original theological basis for the church to be anti-Israel and anti-Jewish because they accused Jacob of being a deceiver and a supplanter in getting the birthright blessing. Now, it's very clear that all of this transpired because God prophesied it was going to happen. God told Rebekah this is what's going to happen. And Israel has been told that they are to be following this path that God has laid out for them. And we have a story of two seeds, the good seed and the bad seed. And while it's wheat and tares, it's this, it's this conflict that rises up throughout many stories and throughout many generations that are taking place. And to me, uh, the person who struggles with the statement, Esau, I hated, Jacob, I uh, loved, and in, with regard to whether or not they think that's a righteous decision or a right thing for God to do, is a person who is fundamentally, fundamentally doesn't understand the great biblical story. They don't understand God's redemption. They don't understand the conflict that is going on in the world. They don't understand how the devil works and how God is countering him and overcoming him. So here we are. This is Malachi. And he makes this statement very emphatically to Israel um, that uh, God loves Israel. And the, the bizarre part of it is, is Israel is apparently standing up in the day of Malachi and saying, well, how, how does God love us? And he reminds him, he said, you ever heard that statement before? Esau I hated, Jacob I loved? F from, from the beginning, from the time that Jacob was born, God's testimony is, I love him, and obviously his descendants. And so that's the reason why Malachi is bringing this up. He's saying, look at the results. Look at what has taken place. God has been faithful to Israel. And, and Esau has suffered greatly, and Esau has been a pack of trouble from the very beginning, even to this day. The concluding part of this portion uh, takes us over to, um, into chapter 2. And let me just read um, some of the words that... Um, um, It says, chapter 2, And now this commandment is for you, O priests. Do not listen and do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts. Then I will send the curses upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have cursed them already because you have not taken it to heart. Behold, I'm going to rebuke your offspring. I'm going to spread refuse on your faces and, the, and refuse of your refuse of your feasts and you will be taken away with it. Then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them as an object of reverence. So he re revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned back many from iniquity. For the lips of the priest shall preserve knowledge, and men shall seek instruction from his mouth. 
for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And one of the things that is being said here is to remind Israel in getting back correctly with the Lord, to be reestablished with the Lord correctly, to repent, the path of repentance, is to again revere his sanctuary and to again revere the priests who've been called to do the ministry of the sanctuary for the people and to, to do those things correctly. And he reiterates the covenant that he has, has with Levi and his descendants to do that kind of work. For us today, the parallel is striking. If we are to be returned to the Lord, if we are to change our ways, get ourselves on a proper path before God, guess who we have to check in with? Our high priest. Our high priest, Yeshua, after the order of Melchizedek. We got to check in with him, and he's the one that leads in the path to revere God correctly and to get us to walk uprightly and clean and appropriate before the Lord. Um, the, the, the same high priest is the one who gave us the Torah. And obviously part of his instruction is to keep the commandments of the Lord, just as Yeshua did and said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's as simple as that. We should always be aware that God has the sovereign power and right to decide everybody's destiny and the end result of our for eternity for us. And rather than going around and thinking, well, I don't know that God is doing that in a just way or in a righteous way, let me assure you, God is very just. He's very righteous. And if you have a question with regard to that, then you have a question and a problem with God. You don't have a problem with the theology going. Ephraim, in a few moments, is going to bring up the subject where the Apostle Paul really addresses this with regard to the sovereignty of God and who are we to question God with regard to it. We should be homing in on that wonderful statement that is of our benefit, Jacob, I have loved. And God's statement on that equates to us as well. God has loved us. He hates, his enemy, hates our enemies. That's basically the bottom line of what's being said here. All right, so that's our Haftor portion for this week's Torah portion. Shabbat shalom to all of you. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 9, and uh, you can hold your finger at verse 10, where our Brit Hadashah portion will begin, and let us go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time once again to study your word and your instruction. And Father, I, we thank you for the uh, Torah portions and the Torah cycle. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us in our faith uh, for this week as we dig into the New Testament. And Father, I pray that it would be always your words that are spoken that uh, speak into our lives and encourage us as we um, close out each week and as we enter into your Sabbath rest. Father, just pour out your Spirit upon us at this time. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Toldot, which uh, we've already covered for this week, talking about um, the 
story of when Jacob and Esau are born of Isaac and that uh, we are continuing the pattern through the patriarchs, through Abraham, through Isaac, and now through Jacob, the study of their lives and how it is the seed of Abraham that is now flourishing and growing that will eventually be the vehicle by which all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, of course, is the promise of the covenant that was given to Abraham. As we've been looking in the New Testament readings, there has been a theme for the past couple of weeks, specifically talking about Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, and now will be carried on as a theme through Jacob and also a, the contrast to Jacob, of course, being Esau, and that we are talking about the child of promise versus a child of the flesh. Obviously, we as believers in God, we want to be children of the promise. We want to be a part of the family of Abraham, a part of the family of God, and that we are, uh, we are brought in and all the blessings that we receive by being in that family. The blessings of, of we're through the promises of Abraham, that we, we, if we follow the commandments, if we are obey the Lord and have faith in God the way Abraham did, that we receive all of those blessings as being a part of that family. We don't want to be just children of flesh. Children of flesh can, can mean a couple of things. One, you, are, you succumb to the weakness of the flesh, and all we ever do is we are tempted by the flesh in all things. But then also, you can also say the children of the flesh is that you are literal descendants of a particular lineage. And in that case, you might say, well, that, that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing if we literally are the descendants of Abraham, that we can trace our lineage back to Israel and that we are literally of the heritage of Israel. The problem, however, is, is that even those that have that heritage, that literally are descendants of the ancients, those are not necessarily the people who have obeyed the Lord in the best way that is possible. Even those that have been within the family of God, that have been related to some of the most important biblical figures that we can read about in our scriptures, it's actually brothers and relatives that have done some of the worst things that we can even imagine. I'm always reminded of Korah when Korah's rebellion took place and that Korah was a cousin of Moses. He was a close friend. I mean, they, they, were, they were related to each other. They, they had spent time together, yet the great, one of the greatest rebellions in all of Israel took place because of a family member rising up and creating a problem. Now, we, of course, if we're talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we can also say that there were other members of the family that didn't do things maybe the right way. Because even Ishmael can stake claim to being a child of Abraham, and even Esau can stake claim to being a child of Isaac and of Abraham and being in that line. But of course, the Scripture is teaching us, and we learn, and when we study Jacob, you have to, in turn, also learn about Esau and learn about the contrast between the two. Because if we are really uh, being realistic about our faith, we would like to be included in the promises that were carried on through the lineage of Jacob and not be ones that act, acted perhaps like Esau did. Esau, of course, was of the family. He was a brother. He was a brother to Jacob. But does anybody want to stake claim in this day and age as being, oh, I'm a son of Esau? No, that's not really how the Scripture tells us that that's a good thing to, to speak of. Why not? You would then be in the lineage of Abraham. You'd be in the lineage of Isaac, right? You could call Abraham your father, literally, if you also are a son of Esau. 
But no, there's a great warning to us in the Scriptures about not being children of the flesh, of those that, that were, even though they could stake claim to it, we know that there is much more to being in, fa- in the family of God than being a literal descendant. In fact, what it's more about is what is in your heart. Who are you? Who do you believe in? What commandments do you follow? Are you a person that God has called and that you are, you're a humble person? You're a loving person, a caring person, a person who wants to just be submit to whatever the Father would have rather than somebody who thinks that by the power of their own strength or their own bravado, they can earn this or earn that in life. Of course, that's not the, what you want your testimony to be. So we have a contrast for us. Now, here in Romans chapter 9, it's one of the few times here in the New Testament that, directs, uh, that relates directly to our Torah portion here, mainly because there's references to Esau here in the New Testament. And here in Romans chapter 9, Paul is speaking, and he, we've already uh, talked about this passage a little bit in some of our previous portions, talking about how Isaac was the, was the child of promise, not just child of the flesh, and that it was, that, that was going to be through Sarah, his mother, that which this line was going to come. Well, now at chapter, uh, verse 10 of chapter 9, it then carries the story forward and then speaks of Rebekah, who was the wife of Isaac, and who gave birth to Jacob and to Esau. Romans chapter 9 at verse 10, it says this, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. And it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. This is the principle that that uh, Paul is trying to teach us here in his letter to the Romans, is this, is that this is still going back to being a child of faith, a child of promise, though it's not based on works. It's not based on what you do, because this is what he is saying, is that while the children were in Rebekah's womb, and if you remember, she went before the Lord, there was great distress in her womb. And of course, back in those days, there was no sonogram, so she didn't know what was going on. So the Lord came, visited her to calm her down and say, look, there are twins, there are two nations that are in your womb. Of course, that would explain perhaps why there's so much wrestling around and jostling around, and there's actually two babies in there and not just one. And that, in fact, this we also believe that there was quarreling between Jacob and Esau, even in the womb. We believe that to be the, the case. But that the promise, then the Lord spoke to Rebekah to, and said to her, the two nations are in your womb, and that one, that, that one was, will be stronger than the other. There was always going to be a conflict. These were not going to be two men that were going to go and be equal to each other, and this was going to be a great nation, this was going to be a great nation, and they'd be equal with blessing and promise and all these things. No, in fact, what it specifically said was one will be stronger than the other. Now, the thing about that promise was that you never knew which one. In fact, it might actually change hands from time to time. Esau, when they were young men, he probably was literally stronger than his younger brother. That, man, that, that it was spoken of Jacob that he was a peaceful man, a man who dwelt in tents, while Esau was a man of the field and, and was, was a great hunter, and he was a guy's guy. And so clearly Esau, these two, though they were twins, Esau was going to win in any fight with, with his brother Jacob at that time because he was literally stronger than the other. It was a fulfillment of the promise. But then the promise continues on later where when the nations that would come out of these men 
one would always be stronger than the other, whether that be Esau, whether it be the, his descendants, and which we'll talk about the descendants of Esau, which became the kingdom of Edom, to which the prophet Obadiah had something to say about that kingdom. And that there was a time in which they were a great, mighty, mighty people, a mighty people able to, to fight or to war or anything like that. And you might say at some point in time that they might have been a great people greater than some of the descendants of Jacob. However, we know spiritually through promise and that there will come a day, of course, when the descendants of Jacob, the descendants of Israel, that they are going to be lifted up and exalted above all nations. And most definitely, they will be much more mighty than whoever the descendants of Esau might be at the time. And so, but this is part of the promise. One will always be stronger than the other. It doesn't necessarily say at any point in time which is which. However, it did say, however, the older shall serve the younger. So whether the older is stronger or weaker, the older will serve the younger. So this was something that Rebecca knew from, very, from day one, that when Esau was born first, she knew the promise was going to go through Jacob, the younger, the second born. That's where the promise, he was the child of promise, not the older. So Rebecca knew this. This was the promise, and this is where why she loved him, knowing that this was that he was the, the child of promise. And that Esau, he became a man that obviously he was kind of after his father's own heart. He went and he hunted game, and Isaac loved him for it. And then in the course of the story, of course, we know that Esau, he married two women that were of the Canaanites that were not part of the family, and that they were a grief to Rebecca and to uh, his uh, father Isaac as well. And that then that later on led to, then was, was a part of the, how uh, Jacob was able to receive the blessing because it was the uh, incense of the gods of the Canaanites that, his, that Esau's wives uh, worshipped that actually caused the blindness in, their fa- in uh, the father Isaac that actually allowed for that blessing to go to Jacob in the first place. And so that's a whole other story as to the, what was so evil about Esau. We also know the story, of course, when Esau sold his birthright. He sold it for a, for a morsel of bread and for, for a, mor- a morsel of meat and, and ate the, red, the stew, the red stew that he gave, and then he earned the nickname Edom. He was called Red, which that's what Edom means, because he ate of the red stew. And so Jacob called him, that was the nickname given to his brother, and called him Edom, uh, Edom called him Red. And so this is, and it goes to show that Esau had no value for his birthright. He had no value for being a part of the family, a child. He didn't even desire to be a child of promise. And so then it says clearly in the Scripture, and it's being quoted here in Romans from the prophet Malachi in chapter 1, where it said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God hated the man who was Esau. Why? Why would God... This is one of the things that struggles for, is a struggle for some people as to why God, God, wait, God hates somebody? Isn't Esau a part of his creation? Isn't this somebody that still, he's, a, he's of the family of Abraham? Wouldn't, for the sake of the covenant with Abraham that God had with Abraham, he would still love one of his descendants? Not if he was a man who walked in nothing but evil and walked in his own abominations, which one of the things that is said is that, that Esau that his descendants, and this is actually going to the prophet Obadiah when it's talking about his descendants in the kingdom of Edom, which was, of course, his nickname, that it was pride that caused that kingdom to fall. Pride, one of the things that God hates, it describes in Proverbs 6 about how God hates a prideful look. 
and that this is one of the reasons why Esau was hated, because he walked in abominations and pride and all these things, and he walked in the flesh. Everything that he thought he needed, he deserved or earned was all because of works of the flesh. Whether it was the gain that he brought is the reason why his father should have blessed him. Not because God loved him or because he loved God or that he, was, he, he wanted to be a part of, of, of believing in the faith and the promises of his grandfather Abraham. No, he thought all of the, he, everything that he earned was based on his works and how strong that he was and all of those different things. And this is clearly the personality of Esau. And God, being a just God, being a God that, yes, does love, does have compassion. But I'll tell you what, anybody that does love something, you also hate anything that might come against that which you love. God clearly loved Jacob. He was the child of promise. And Esau despised Jacob. Esau quarreled with Jacob. Esau was always trying to be a rival to Jacob. Right? In no case in, in Scripture, and you'll never have any Bible scholar ever tell you that there was ever a time in which Esau and Jacob were you know, two good brothers, loving brothers, who, who you know, loved spending some time with each other. No. Esau hated his brother. He quarreled with his brother at any, at any chance he could get. He competed against him. He tried to always think he was better. Well, wait, if God loved Jacob, then he's going to hate the thing that would come against that which he loves. This, of course, was Esau. That's why God can say that he hated Esau, that God hates lots of things. Scripture says all the different things that God hates. And so if you commit certain sins, certain acts, certain abominations, such as having a great deal of pride, such as sowing discord among the brethren, such as uh, so, uh, all the different Proverbs chapter six, you can read seven of them. Plus, there's other times in which God says He hates divorce in Malachi chapter two. He hates idolatry, as it's spoken of in Deuteronomy. There are things that God hates. It's okay for God to hate something, especially when all of those things are going to be something that is going to lead His people astray. Israel is His people. Jacob is Israel. And so all of those things that was going to be a, 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 a hindrance, a contention with Israel, with Jacob, most of it came from his brother. That way means God had every right to hate that which was going to come against what he loves. This is, again, something that people struggle with. I don't want to know if I want to believe in a God that hates things or hates somebody. Well, it's his right to do so, and he's God. We don't get to make those choices. Uh, we're talking about a just God, a merciful and a just God. If it says that he hated something, we need to still continue to submit to God's will and not think that God should is being a little too harsh on a member of the family. That's not the case. If you would now turn to the book of Hebrews to chapter 12 at the end of the book, there's another reference to Esau that points out a little bit more of the character of Esau as I'm starting to describe, that Esau is not somebody that we want to be considered as our father or that we're a child of Esau or that we are, uh, we were not from that side of the family. You know, everybody's got that. We just got done with Thanksgiving. And so it's like everybody's got that, that member of the family that you're like, uh, are you sure he's not adopted? You know, we always say that about our brothers. And so we, when we start to learn more about Esau, we start to question. We're like, man, I cannot believe this guy was actually a member of the family. But of course, there was a great uh, contradiction, and this is God Himself had a problem with Esau here. So now in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews gives us a little bit more detail, starting at verse 14 of chapter 12, where he's talking about this and talking about who we might fellowship with, actually. Verse 14, chapter 12, pursue peace with all people 
and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up to cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is a warning, of course, to us, that it's like all of us have the capacity to rise up, even close members of the family, Everyone has a capacity to rise up, to rebel. And why do we do that? Because we've either allowed certain things to come into our lives and that root of bitterness springs up thinking that maybe I should have received more blessing than my fellow brother over here. You can start to see some of the contention probably between Isaac or between Jacob and Esau um, as I'm describing this. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This is going back to who we fellowship with, knowing that there are people among us, even family members, that there shall not be, that, 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 that we don't want to have people like this amongst us, but there are, and Esau was described as a fornicator and a profane person. Some, uh, some translations will say, uh, talk about a sexually immoral person that obviously we know he married two women of the, of, of the Canaanites and that he acted a certain way and that he was a profane person. He didn't, people didn't like being around him. This is starting to think, it starts to describe what the, the kind of guy that he was. And that when you are that way, even when you go to, uh, weeping bitterly for, for blessing to come or for repentance to happen, you will not find the favor and you will not find a place of repentance if you decide to be a person like this. We, this is connecting back to after the blessings were put upon Jacob and Esau. Blessing was put upon Jacob. And obviously, Isaac, being blind, uh, thought that he was blessing Esau. And so he put out that blessing, but then when Esau came in from the, from the field and said, here, here, here's, your, here's your food, Father, and he's all like, please give me a blessing. And it's like, who's this? This is Esau. And he's like, then who was that? And he wept bitterly and asked for a blessing. And a, yes, he still received a blessing, but it was not the firstborn blessing. It was not the blessing of promise that came through the covenant with Abraham. No, it was a blessing that he, would, that he still would be a great nation, but that it wasn't the same, and he wept bitterly for it. And then he might say and repent and wonder, why in this world is, is this happening to me? Well, maybe if you had been a certain way with your brother or with your, that you shouldn't have married those wives or you shouldn't have been the way that you are and the way that you act, that there is a certain level that a person can act or be or a certain sin that people can commit that even when you go to seek forgiveness and repentance, there's a chance you might not find a place. You won't, you, there was, you do not want a testimony of God looking down on you and said, no, I hated you for what you did, for what you did against my people. And that's going to be the case for some people. Some people in this world who has spoken so disdainfully toward whether it be God's people, whether it be the sons of Israel, whether it be the Jews, or whether it might be uh, New Covenant Christians that, have, uh, that, that are believing in God, the promises of God and that they're seeking the, God in that way. If there have been people in the world who have acted profanely, uh, sexually immoral people, whatever other sins they might have committed, 
And if they were nothing but a, a, a hindrance to the people of God, the people of God, whether that's Israel, of course, or, or, or believers in Yeshua or all the followers, if you act that way, then there might be a chance that God might turn to you and say, I hated you for what you did. You do not want it because then that would make you a child of Esau. You'd be related. You did the same thing that he did. Though you might be a physical descendant of the, of, of the ancients, you acted this way. You acted like Esau. When we had warning after warning of, don't be like that. Don't be like Esau. Don't act with pride. Don't, don't come against the people of God, because that's what he did. Esau there is described in, at the end of the book of Hebrews as, uh, as a fornicator, a profane person. That reminds me of another passage here in the New Testament that is another warning to us, and that's, of course, 1 Corinthians 5 that speaks more of that those who act immorally will be judged. I don't care who your daddy is. I don't care, you know, what other things you might have done in your life. If you act a certain way, there will be judgment that will come your way, just like judgment came upon Esau. So in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is speaking to the, to the Corinthians. Let's start at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of the world or with the covetous, the extortioners, the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out into the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. This is the responsibility back to those who are in the family of God, that we have brothers all around us in our fellowships, in our congregations, in our own personal families, that if they act this certain way, if they act in any of these ways that are being described, some of these that were being described or actually being spoken of, Esau, once again, a brother of the family, and that if you see people that are like this, you're not even to eat with such a person. You're not to be in fellowship. It is your job and your responsibility to cast the evil from your midst. Now, we know the world's out there. We know the people out there in the world that are acting all of these different ways. And what do we usually do? We will stand in some of times in our, in our fellowships, in our congregations, and we'll talk about how evil the world is. And that how, oh, we, we have it so good in our fellowship and in our congregation, and it's a good thing we're not like the rest of the world. Excuse me, that's God's job to talk about what's going on in the world. God will be the one that will judge all of the people, all of the, the fornicators and the extortioners and all the people and the drunkards that are all out there in the world. You have a job and a responsibility to take care of numero uno, that is your family and those who are around you in your community. Do we... Are, are, are in, in our fellowships and our congregations, I almost would say this, is that if you're actually in a fellowship or congregation that all they talk about is how evil the rest of the world is, and they're not doing anything, they're not speaking into the lives of their flock and their people that are in their congregations and saying, if is there any evil among us here that we need to cast out, you need to make sure this person is a sinner in this way, then we need to be dealing with this right here, right now, and not talking about what's outside of those doors. 
That's who we need to be talking about. That's who we, that, that is the responsibility of the people of God to sometimes to judge amongst ourselves, to clean ourselves, to take care of ourselves. That's our job and our responsibility. We don't just throw our hands up and say, Lord, all of it belongs, Lord, you take care of this people and take care of that people. No, well, then we're not doing anything. We're not doing what we need to be doing to remove the evil from our midst. This is something, this is a struggle because sometimes you got your brother, you got your family member, you got that person right there, and you're like, what? What do you do with your brother who is in sin? You go to him and you have to, you have to go to them with the sin. You have to talk to them and you have to, put, you have to take care of that because if you allow that to, to stay among you, well, then that's when you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem in your families and in your fellowship in the same way that it's like there had to be, be a separation between Esau and Jacob. Now, obviously, through all of that, you know, Esau then threatened Jacob's life and Jacob needed to flee. And that's going to, we'll, we'll talk about that and how Jacob ended up being blessed and going to his uh, uncle Laban's house. And we'll be talking about that in the upcoming weeks. And so, but there has to be this separation between them. No, and we have to divide, the, we have to separate the evil from among us. I guarantee you it was a great day, a great blessing when Esau finally left his father and his mother's house. We know Isaac and Rebekah, they lived on for, for a period of time longer and when Jacob had fled and went, to, uh, went up to his uncle Laban's. And that, but you can only imagine the, the blessing that it is when those things finally are separated from the family. We are warned in the New Testament that to, and, and in the Old, because even, the one who, even in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, it talks about how if somebody comes to you with a new doctrine, a dreamer of dreams, performing miracles, telling you to, to go after other gods or go after another commandment, that you're to put that person to death and cut them off from among their people, even if it is a brother. This is something that is very hard for us to do, but we have to take it seriously when it comes to cleaning out the evil that is among us. The last thing I want to talk about here for our Torah portion of Toldot is going back to Isaac, going back to the fact that Isaac was the promised son of Abraham and that there are very few passages that actually talk specifically about Isaac. In fact, our Torah portion here of Toldot, really chapter 26 of Genesis is the only chapter that talks about Isaac really hit just him, rather than being focused more on either Jacob or upon Esau or upon Rebekah or upon uh, uh, Abraham. All these other things are going on. And so that, um, so focusing here on Isaac, the promised son. I've always found it curious as to why Isaac doesn't get more talked about him. He actually lived longer than Jacob and Abraham as well. He lived longer than his son and his father. And yet, there is less scripture about him. I do find it fascinating that um, within Judaism, they talk about very fondly about the life of Isaac. The fact that Isaac never had his name changed by God. Some who've studied the word for many years have said that it's all like, oh, well, he was such a, he was a holy, he was a righteous man, that he didn't need to have his name changed by God. It's also in all of the, anything that we can study biblically, he never left the promised land. He never went down to Egypt for his life to be preserved, and he never left and went back up to Syria to get his wife or whatever. He always stayed and remained in the land. In fact, Judaism looks at Isaac and idealizes him as the ideal man 
who was blessed and favored of God, who didn't have to go to Egypt to have his life preserved, and they speak very fondly of Isaac. And they describe Isaac almost in a Messiah-like figure. Well, we, of course, connect Isaac, the promised son of Abraham, to Yeshua, the promised son of God, when God said that there would be a lamb that he would provide. And so the fact that Isaac is looked upon this way within Judaism, who don't believe Yeshua is the Messiah, it's always fascinating to me to see that the relation between Isaac and the Messiah himself, Yeshua. And so that's another amazing parallel here from our Torah portion to that. And the other thing that I want to point out is this, and this is another parallel. This isn't in the actual listed readings of the Brit Hadashah readings for uh, the Torah portions, but I do want to point out one other parallel to our story and also to the New Testament. When we have Rebekah, the mother of Jacob, the wife of Isaac, and that when she was, uh, when there was distress in her womb and she had Jacob and Esau in the womb, and the, and the Lord visited her and gave her the blessing and the promise, saying, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the, other, and the older shall serve the younger. This blessing of, of promise. I connect this, and it's an amazing parallel. God works in cycles, and what happens to the fathers will happen to the descendants. And if you go to Luke chapter 1, we, of course, have a similar interaction with the angel of the Lord that comes to visit Mary when the Messiah is in her womb. She doesn't realize it yet. She doesn't, didn't, didn't know it. But if you go to uh, the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 1, we have this story where the angel comes before Mary, and you can see and read the parallels between Rebekah and the birth of Jacob and Esau. So in Luke chapter 1, let me start at verse 26. Let me read our story here. <clears throat> Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting was this. She was troubled in the same way that Rebekah was troubled as well in the course of at the time that the Lord visited her. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Yeshua, or Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David." And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the interaction in which the angel came, the messenger of God came, spoke all of these promises to Mary and that she was going to conceive a son and that this was going to be the birth of the Messiah and that the promise upon him is the thing that is an amazing parallel here, where it talks about he will sit on the throne of his father David, 
and that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Remember the promise to Rebekah that there is nations that are in your womb, nations that will, that will grow from the children that you are carrying. And the same promise is given to Mary, speaking of the Messiah himself, that we are talking about a nation, we're talking about a kingdom that is going to come from him, a kingdom that has no end. And it specifically says right here, he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. House of Jacob, not the house of Israel, the house of Jacob. This causes us to think and look back and remember, okay, remember Jacob? Remember the promises that, that, that he was the child of promise, that he was the one, and this goes all the way back to our father Abraham. This is the thing that's lost on us sometimes when we're talking about the Messiah, when we're talking about his lineage. We, we focus very much on him being the Messiah, the Son of God. He's a Savior to the world, and we believe in him, and we receive all these things. But we got to remember, what's the original blessing that is put upon the Messiah? that he would sit on the throne of his father David, that he would be king over all Israel. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. This is the promise of the Messiah. This is what the Messiah will do. For anybody that might think that the Messiah has come and has done away with Israel or that Israel is no longer God's people, excuse me, the whole promise of him, the Messiah himself, was that he would sit on that throne and that he would reign over that people and that that kingdom will have no end. That means the kingdom of Israel, the throne of David, will have the power of that throne and the one who sits on that throne will reign over all, that we can't even fathom the end of that kingdom. Israel has not been replaced whatsoever by the works of the Messiah. The work of the Messiah points us back to our, the promises that came through our father Abraham and through Isaac and through Jacob. That's why you cannot teach one without the other. You cannot separate the works of the Messiah from what God was doing with the patriarchs, the promises. He was planting the seed with Abraham, saying, in his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That seed was planted, and it grew, and it grew to a mighty kingdom and a fruitful tree, all the way to the point that the greatest thing that was ever birthed from that seed, from that lineage, was the Messiah himself. And it all connects back to the promises that were given to our father Abraham. One of the things I love pointing out, the, the, the gospel message began with the covenant of Abraham. In His seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The Messiah came teaching the gospel message that in all... You want to be brought into the family of God. Romans is talking all about adoption and being inheritors, being sons of the living God and receiving and inheriting all the blessings of being a part of the family. And what family is that? The family of the Messiah, which is the, who was the son of David, who was the son of Jacob and of Israel and of Isaac and Abraham. This is why we teach both. This is why we teach the, the uh, Torah portions and the instructions and what our fathers experienced and connect them to what the Messiah is doing for us in our lives today. So I hope that we'd be encouraged by this message as we find ourselves in the faith of God following in his, in his family and receiving all of those blessings, knowing and understanding we want to be children of the promise, not children of the flesh. May we not be like our brother Esau, that we maybe sometimes wish that that wasn't our brother, but that we cast out the evil from among us so that we can fulfill and the promises of God and be 
the fulfillment of prophecy and be the children of God that He has called. And of course, this all, I have to say this as well, it's not about being a physical descendant of Abraham because all the families of the earth will be blessed through his seed. And that means that all can be adopted in regardless of what your heritage or your lineage is. That's a blessing to all of us, no matter if you can trace your lineage or you, you can or you can't or you know where you're from or whether you don't, all can be adopted in into the family and receive the blessings of that promise. What a blessing that is. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your teaching, your instruction. We thank you for... Uh, the testimony of the Messiah, Lord, and we thank you for all the teachings. We thank you for Paul in the first century, Lord, and all the things that he said and he wrote as he was trying to teach and encourage the brethren, Lord, of your works and your ways, Father. Father, I may, we, may we learn, Lord, not to create a separation between us and you, Father. May we not separate your words and your instructions, Father. May we not separate the law from the Spirit, and may we not separate... Father, I pray that we would find the balance, Lord, of what it is to walk in faith and to walk in works as we serve you and obey your word and your instruction. That, Father, as we walk in faith, that does not replace the need to obey your commandments. For, Father, it was Paul that was, uh, it was a great Torah teacher that followed your word, followed your instruction. And, Father, for the Messiah himself, Lord, he taught the Torah himself, and he was the perfect fulfillment of the Scripture and of the Torah. He was the very word of God made flesh. And so, Father, I pray that we would always keep that in mind and stop trying to divide the body of the Messiah, Lord. Not try, keep, stop trying to divide the people and divide the Scripture, cutting it in half between the New Testament and the Old. But, Father, teach us, Lord, all of your ways, all of your words, all of your instruction, Lord. Father, we thank you. Speak into our, uh, encourage us in our most holy faith, and especially on this Sabbath day, Father. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Yivrechecha Adonai Vaishmarecha Yahweh May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.